Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, we've come to the last verses of the first section of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 lays out foundations for humanity as well as a foundation for God sending Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. Um, This also lists the generations of mankind up to this point, narrowing down now to the introduction of Abram, uh, the next major, major uh, person or character in the redemptive plan of God. Uh, The second Adam, the seed of the woman who will provide us with salvation, comes through Abraham, first known as Abram, and we are introduced to him now. These verses really provide a bit of a capstone now to our study this far. Uh, these last verses from 10 down to verse 32. I will use this opportunity to capture some of the larger concepts or themes we have seen through Genesis 1 through 11 before we go into Genesis 12 to 50. Um, We have before us the generations of Shem now. There are 10 generations listed. Not all the individuals uh, in the generations are listed. We even see some missing from chapter 10. This is because Now Moses is focusing on the particular individuals chosen by God to perpetuate the seed of the woman. So it gets very specific, narrows down to Abram. So we have before us, though, some very important information that builds us or sets the stage for what will come next with the promises of God being realized through the patriarchs. If chapter 1 through 11 could be typified by saying foundations and generations, we would say chapters 12 through 50 our promises and patriarchs. Here now as I read God's holy word, Genesis 11, I'll read verse 10 down to verse 32. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after the fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. 
Now Sarai was barren. She had no children, no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we have come to the end of what is known as primeval history. In these chapters, we have seen your sovereignty and creation on glorious display. We have witnessed the fall of humanity into sin, and in the same episode observed your sovereign promise of a second Adam, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who you would send, and he was willing to come to crush the head of Satan so that we could be saved. As we come to the end of this opening section of your word, please impress us again with your plan and your providence, with your grace to sinners and the display of your unconditional election. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Foundations and generations. This is what we have been seeing in these opening chapters of Genesis. Now we come to the capstone half of a chapter, the finale, if you will, of this primeval history, that history that's before Abraham. Uh, Abraham was born and raised around 200 B.C. Uh, we've just read through the history that predates that. Now, Scripture is more than simply history. We know that. It's redemption history. It's a history of God's working out of salvation. It's more than just that. In these pages, we have not only what God has done, but also what we should be doing in light of what he has done and what he tells us concerning. Genesis 11 finishes with a narrowing of the generations to one man. From Shem, one of the sons of Noah, down to the person of Abram, who will be the key figure going forward. You might even say one of the key figures for the rest of the whole of the Scripture. We have a focus on the seed narrowing to the person of Abram. Chapters 1 through 10 gave more of a general history. Now we come to Abram and his progeny, the hand of God's salvation upon Abram and the people he grows from Abram, leading to the person of Christ, our Savior. Let's remember for a moment, who was Genesis first written to? The first audience to receive Genesis would have been those Israelites who had just been rescued out of Egypt, post-Exodus Israel. They're not in the promised land yet, but they've been delivered by God's hand. Most likely, he's writing when he's in the wilderness, Moses, the writer. He's preparing Israel to take the land of promise to go into Canaan that's occupied by all these people that they feel overwhelmed with. How can we possibly do what God is calling us? And by laying this foundation for them first, they gain a sense of their identity, who God is, who they are, what is God doing, what is their calling, how can they be sure of it? All of these things, crucially important for that initial audience, and of course, just as important for us now as we see who God is through this and we know from the fulfillment of the rest of Scripture what God has done, and this helps us with the day in which we live, this timeless reality about our sovereign God with his hand of election upon his people. And it plays out here. It has been playing out. It will continue to in the book of Genesis, and it will throughout the end until Christ comes the first time and until he comes again. All of these truths are timeless, and we see them so vividly. I want you to notice 
a few points of humanity before we dive into these larger concepts. When you look at a genealogy like this, or a lineage, the generations, a listing, we would be easily lured into just seeing it as a listing of names for, the, for fact's sake. But we all know, because we live lives, that the refrain in this passage, which is different from what we see, say, later, or earlier, when they lived so, so long and then they died. Here it's that they had other sons and daughters. And we know that that entails all sorts of living, all sorts of life. I think you probably noticed something else in the passage. Did you notice the declining years for people in the generations as they compounded? If you look at every other verse, you'll see a listing of how long they lived after they fathered the child that's mentioned. And the child mentioned it has particular, a particular purpose. This is a person who's perpetuating the seed who leads to Abram. That's the point of the listing. But notice verse 11, Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years. Then verse 13, Arpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years. Then Shelah lived 403 years. Then Eber lived 430 years. Still really massive periods of time from what we're used to. Yet verse 19, notice the difference. Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years. That's a big drop off. 209 years now. Still a long time for our thinking, but in this time period, we see a definite declining. Ru lived, verse 21, after he fathered Sarag, 207 years. Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor, 200 years. Nahor lived after he fathered Terah, and here's the biggest drop-off yet, 119 years. Just a measly 119 years. Terah lived 205 years total. That's Abraham's father. We know that Abraham lived 175 years, Isaac lived 180 years, Jacob lived 147 years, Joseph lived 110 years. You could see it slowly but surely lowering the age span. Now, it's interesting here. Moses lived 120 years, the author of Genesis. In Moses' day, the age span was between 70 and 80, which, by the way, is the expected life, that's a life expectancy today. Now, I heard it from all our octogenarians and those who are older in the first service, so I want to be careful. Uh, just because it's 70 to 80 doesn't mean you don't have plenty of time left. But the, the, what Moses says, who lived 120, Moses says in Psalm 90, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. That's Moses writing Psalm 90. Now, Moses himself lived to be 120. But it's true that even in our day, it's very rare you'll find anyone on earth who makes it past 120. I think there was someone who just died recently who was like 118, they thought. But typically, it's between 70 and 80. That's the actual expectancy, 75-ish. And so this is clearly something that's changed over the course of time. Joshua lived 110 years, who was Moses' successor, but King David lived to be 70. The ages had dropped considerably since the time of Noah. Now, some have suggested that the years were just calculated different before Abraham, and that's why these numbers are what they are. I don't think that's accurate. Most scholars don't think that's the case. Others will point out that limitation that God seems to give to humanity after the flood. I indicated that was the position I thought was probably realistic, that he wasn't going to allow the lifespan to go past 120 eventually. People argue, well, that didn't happen right away. People still lived a long time. That's true. But eventually it gets to this place of where Moses is even saying 70 by reason of strength, 80. Others note that the atmospheric condition on the earth might have changed after the flood. 
wasn't as favorable to long human life. More sun exposure, lower air quality, all sorts of possibilities there. It's interesting, in recent times, research on the human genome has revealed that humanity is genetically degrading with each new generation. Unlike the theory of evolution, which says things are getting better, that humanity is moving upward, all the evidence points against that, in observable evidence, not just theory, where they study the genome and discover that with each generation, more and more uh, changes happen that are actually bringing us down. We're actually lowering in our quality, if you will. Uh, we as a species, the experts say, are gradually declining in average intellect and physiology because we are accumulating mutations that are causing a gradual degradation. In essence, we're a degrading race. Maybe early on in those days, we see that more drastically. I want you to notice this reality that we are a dying race and that we need the life that God gives. I want you also to notice something else in observation before we look at a few concepts that really bring a capstone to our study of Genesis 1 through 11. The other thing, when you're looking at this genealogy, or I should say the generations, uh, notice it's a listing of generations, but there's some painful human details wrapped in it that all of us can appreciate when we read something like this. People are living and people are dying. Each life lived means connection with others. Each death means the end of those connections. We all know the feeling of that pain. Everyone here has experienced at some level, I'm sure. People living shorter lives, that makes a difference. Especially the first generations that weren't living as long, still overlapping with those who had lived longer. There's so many dynamics that are very interesting here. Some tough human situations. Look at verse 26 of our text. It's easy to miss if we read it too quickly. But notice that Terah who is the father of Abraham, it seems as though he has not had his first children until he's 70 years old. Whereas the other guys mentioned in the text, almost all of them are between 30 and 35. I don't know if you've noticed. He was 70. Then it says of Terah, the father of Abraham again. These are the generations of Terah, verse 27. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Of course, the mention of Lot is because Lot becomes an important figure. But don't miss verse 28. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah. Terah lived to bury his own son, Haran. There's pain wrapped up in this that people, we understand this. We have all probably experienced this in our life in some way, uh, what we would call premature death. God is sovereign, but we don't expect that, and this is what happens in the life of terror. We see the reality of humanity, what sin has done, how it's created this instability in humanity. Terah went to the land of his kindred, or this was when he was in the land of his kindred, verse 28, the Ur of the Chaldeans. We know that Terah left from the Ur of Chaldeans. Maybe the pain of the loss of his son was too much. We know there was, in, there was invading armies in those times. Maybe that's the reason. He meant to go to Canaan. He doesn't even get to Canaan. He stops in Haran. People moving all the time. If you've moved once or twice, you know the trauma of this. These people are largely nomadic, moving around, constantly moving around. And let's not miss the pain of Sarai that's mentioned. We come to know much more of that pain because of what Genesis unfolds and how important this feature of her life, this really private area of her life, is on full display. In verse 29, Abram and Nahor took wives. The, wives. the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. In verse 30, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. The barrenness of Sarai was terribly painful for her. We know this as it unfolds. The point I'm making to you that I want you to consider when we read a, gener a list of generations um, there's always more to contemplate when reading these listings than first meets the eye. Um, I've mentioned to you many times how I will often take walks through the cemetery. I'll read the stones. 
And Mike Flanagan, who's a supervisor there, said something profound to me once when I was looking and I, I told him one time that I tabulated, you know, the kind of the average ages I was seeing and I was amazed by how many young people have been buried in that cemetery and we were talking about it and, and he knew I was talking in terms of um, these are memorial stones for people who have died. And he said something profound that I wrote down and have not, not uh, forgotten since. He goes, you know, the memorial stones, don't, they don't represent people who died, but rather they represent lives that were lived. And when we read the list of generations, I know we're moving ahead to Abram because we want to get there, but don't forget every one of these people had lives. They lived lives, they had other sons and daughters, they had families, and they lived and they died. And there's stories between there, full stories, just like you have full stories in your life. So I mention this to you as we move to capturing some of the larger concepts that we have learned in Genesis 1 through 11 and are in the Bible on the whole. What we move to now is the call of Abram. That's what's coming in chapter 12, the call of Abraham eventually. And so building to this, we pause for a moment to consider what's been happening, and we recognize that this eventual call that we're going to read about, this call to Abraham, the fact that God moves everything to this point leaves no doubt about God's determination to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the devil, the Messiah. There are several observations I would like to make for you, um, the first being the longest and then descending and how much time will allot. The first consideration is about God's sovereignty, his sovereignty over the whole of this story that's unfolding, that continues to unfold, that he's his sovereign in his plan and in his providence to work these things to his guided end. This should give us great security and encouragement. The second concept I want us to consider is how God does this work of rescuing people who don't even know they need rescued, including you. You did not know you needed rescue when God rescued you. And we see that most evidently throughout the story of Genesis 1 through 11, but especially when we come to Abram. Finally, I want us to see, in the briefest form, a word of encouragement about God's willing to save and that no barriers stand in the way. Nothing you could put up will stand in the way of what God is willing to do in salvation. Because Abraham and Sarai, they're proof of God's willingness to override any perceived barrier to his saving plan. Now, let's look first at God's sovereign hand, his sovereign plan in his providence and salvation that has been on display since Genesis 1. We've been watching the relationship with God and humanity from the beginning of the book. We've seen man reacting to God in sinful ways. We'll see man disobeying God. And it seems as though on first blush, if you didn't know the full of the story, that God's reacting to man as he does these different things. But the reality is we set back and we listen to the narrative, we see the narrative unfold. We hear other commentaries on it from other biblical authors, even the people in the middle of it at times, all attributing the activity and the outflow of the story to God himself, that he's sovereignly over every aspect of this. Now, I want us to consider something of God's sovereignty as a point to consider going forward as well. In the beginning there was God, there always was God. He created everything, including humankind, the ultimate show of sovereign power. God placed mankind into the garden and on the earth to tend and to keep it, to be his vice regents. We see man act sinfully, yet God never seems out of control. As we narrow down to the person of Abram, the sovereignty of God is on full display all the more. 
Now, when we think of the sovereignty of God, I want you to think of three concepts the Bible teaches that unfold under this umbrella called the sovereignty of God. If you ask any Christian, do you believe God is sovereign, almost everyone will say yes. But they usually mean that he could do whatever he wants. But the Bible's depiction of the sovereignty of God means he does do whatever he wants. And under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God, think of three basic headings. Um, Predestination would be one, providence would be one, and election would be one. To put them in other terms, predestination, we're talking about the decrees of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God. Under the providence of God, we're talking about his personal, intimate, hand upon people and events to move them in the direction he wants. That's the providence of God. And finally, the election of God, that has to do with God choosing a nation or a people for his saving purposes. We see both of those unfold in Genesis. So let's think of those just a little more deeply, each of those, so that we'll have some basis as we go forward to further understand what God is doing in his story, in his plan of redemption. First, his sovereign will, his plan, his decrees, what we call what God has predestined. In the Old Testament, we see God's guiding hand constantly on display. The first most powerful statement is in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything so he could do whatever he wants with everything because he is the sovereign one. Then as the story unfolds, and we have different times where people meet God and speak for God because he, through his spirit, speaks through them, the prophet Isaiah gives us some vivid picturing of God's sovereignty on display, his purpose or his decrees. Isaiah 14, verse 26, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. So there's a purpose for the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Rhetorically, nobody's turning it back. His purpose is going to go forward because he has a purpose. He has a will. He has a plan. Later in Isaiah chapter 46, speaking for God, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I don't, it's not speaking like a human, you know, I hope to accomplish, I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So God has a plan that's clearly on display through all the, all the biblical writers. He will bring it to pass. That's what's unfolding in Genesis. Predestination has to do with his unfolding the plan. We see his unfolding the plan in Genesis. And we read in Proverbs, even down to these details, the Lord has made everything for his purpose. Everything. Even the wicked for the day of, destru- uh, the day of destruction. God has a purpose for all events. He makes things to execute his plan in real time. So when we get to the New Testament, after the fulfillment of Christ having come has occurred, we find no shortage of references to the same thing, God's absolute sovereignty. Paul, writing to the Ephesians in chapter 1, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So he has a purpose in this calling of us. Verse 7 of Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, his will, some of it revealed, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Now, there's a mixture coming in here of providence, which we'll get to in a moment. Predestination is due to the big plan he's working, the big picture. Providence will be the way he works it, carefully, skillfully, lovingly. But then it says of his decrees, verse 11, Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. How we've been predestined? According to the purpose of him. So predestination is on the basis of his purpose. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not most things or the big things, all things according to the counsel of his will. There's a purpose of his will, the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan. This is why when we get to Acts chapter 2, Peter's giving this big sermon to the Jews who had the Bible. They had this background, but they'd forgotten it, didn't believe it. And Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Wait, they thought that the Jewish leaders had killed Jesus, or the Romans had killed Jesus. What a debacle this all was. Oh, on the human level, there's responsibility. But this is according to the predetermined plan of God, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God has a definite plan. And by the way, when you read foreknowledge and it's used with God, it doesn't mean the same thing as it does for us. Foreknowledge applied to God means that he knows ahead of time how he will work out his plan. Early Christians gave clear evidence that in the personal, practical level, this doctrine meant everything to them. It gave them strength to do what God called them to do, knowing that he, his will would be done. So they should answer what his moral will is because his sovereign will was established. The best example of this that I love so much is when Peter and John, early after uh, the Christians had become known as followers of Christ and the Roman authorities were looking for them, trying to squash out the young church after Jesus had ascended, and Peter and John, who were leaders of the, the church in those days, could have, if they were killed, it easily would have crushed the movement. But instead of being killed, God miraculously delivers them from prison. We see this happen many times in Acts. God keeps showing that his plan won't be thwarted by the authorities of the world. But the prayer of the people when Peter and John come back evidences that the stuff we're talking about is not just theory. It makes all the difference in your life and how you view things unfolding. Listen to what they pray when Peter and John are returned to them. And when they were released, this is in Acts 4, when they were released, they, were, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, listen to the words of the prayer. It says what they believe. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place." Their confidence in the ongoing spread of the church was in the sovereignty of God, that he would execute his plan, and no outward oppression would stop that. This is why Paul, capturing uh, later in his ministry, in his letter to the Romans, says in Romans chapter 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. By the way, for those who don't love God, all things do work together, still according to his plan, just not for their good. 
But it says in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, his will. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the plan of God has been unfolding in Genesis 1 through 11, and we'll see it even more vividly. This is a setup for 12 to 50. We come to the last verses of chapter 11. We'll be introduced to a major character in this redemptive drama. And this person, Abram, um, has the providence of God all around and over him, just like we do. The providence of God fits under the sovereignty of God. It fits under the predestination of God. It's the actual way that God, or the reality that God moves things. He's not a clockmaker who sets a clock and walks away. He's sovereign, but he's not impersonal. And providence is about his being personal with things and people, events and humans, all things. That's what we're talking about when we speak of his providence. Now, the verses I read all support providence too. I accented that he has a plan. But listen to the accenting on Ephesians 1.11, a verse you may be uh, familiar with, and you'll see providence in it. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, and this is providence, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He has a plan, and he also actively works in these details. There's no detail of your life that God is not concerned with. He's God. In Romans 8, 28, that I read earlier, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together. Who works those things? That's the providence of God in the life of a believer. God's work Works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures in all their actions. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism number 11. Providence is God's continual involvement with creation to steer it to its conclusion. Listen, I'm not saying that, that when we think of all events and the painful events, how could God be behind this? I'm not suggesting that me just saying this will make you feel better automatically. But when we get out of that situation and we consider the alternatives of complete chaos, out of control. Would you rather know that the hand of the living God who loves you and has an ultimate plan is controlling these things or he's out of control or he could have done something and he didn't? This serves to bolster us when we start to contemplate what is being said. J.I. Packer says that God's providence is about his total hands-on approach to events and people. In Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Our confession does so well to characterize God, the creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, and his most wise and holy providence guides. Yes, lots of mystery. But most reactions we have to this are utterly emotional. They're not based on what the scripture reveals. Under the larger umbrella of God's sovereignty is also something else that we see on display in Genesis 1 through 11. That is that the, the action of election, choosing, divine election. That's what we see throughout this book, and we see it here especially in Shem's line. But we saw it earlier when he called out Noah, when he calls out uh, different selected people and nations to do his bidding for the purpose of salvation. There is corporate election when he chooses Israel. This doesn't mean that all of Israel is saved in that sense. It just means they're called out for a special purpose, which we will see, and God will guide and guard them throughout the Old Testament. It doesn't mean every individual in Israel is themselves elect 
It just means that the nation is, and there's a benefit to being part of Israel, obviously, in this time span. That's corporate election. There's also individual election where he chooses individuals for salvation, for his purposes. And Abram's the first real picture of this. He believes God. It's counted to him as righteousness. We look back through the New Testament lens and see how God elected Abram for this work, even though it's impossible to imagine why he'd be qualified to be elected. It's what God does. It's by the purpose of his will. In both cases, corporate and individual, God chooses without regard to their worthiness, without regard to their initial will in the matter, he chooses for his purposes. It's unconditional in this sense. Really, the most vivid picture of this falls out in Romans chapter 9 when Paul describes it this way. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Before they were born, God determined. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. This is God. God could do exactly what he wants, or he's not God. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You may say to yourself, well, how do I know I'm elect? Do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Do you rest in his finished work Then you are elect? An unelect person does not believe that. The evidence of your election is that you believe. Now, there are other things that we could test our salvation concerning, but the initial level is if you believe in Christ, you know you're a sinner, you can only be right with him, that's what we are to be concerned with. That's how we know. This concluding section of Genesis really finishes a lengthy narrative that depicts the hand of God moving things to the point of introducing Abram. That's where we have come to. These concepts related to God's sovereignty, his sovereign will, his providence, election, they serve to bolster our confidence in God's presence concerning our daily lives. I think these concepts, I know personally for me, I remember when these things started to become more clear to me by the reading of Scripture, I always would try to discern them on the basis of what I thought was fair and right. Only over time do I think less and less of what I think is fair and right. I have no concept of what that is. I can only go to what God says is fair, right, fair and right, and then as my wills conform to his will, it becomes glorious. It becomes obvious that there is no other option. There's no other hope. And if you think to yourself, well, what about the person I know? Share that with that person who Christ is. It should compel us to evangelism, to let everyone know. Packer says it this way, the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good and ultimately for his glory. This doctrine is, affords, gives us reason to praise, reason to revere God, to admire God, to have humility before him. And it's a consolation to all who sincerely obey the gospel, as our confession so well says in capturing the biblical teaching. Now, something else that we see in these opening chapters. We spent the most time there. Now, more briefly, these last two points. I want us to see from this story, through Abram, the calling of Abram that the buildup is coming to, that God rescues sinners before they know they need to be rescued. Now, this is true in every case. Every character we can think of so far, even in the opening 11 chapters, who have become significant in the plan. Adam, when he sinned, he didn't go seek God. He was sought out by God and rescued. Noah, 
in the, faith, in, the, in the world of people who were doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, found favor in God's sight. It was from that favor that God showed to Noah that his life flows out from. Noah was not said to be looking for God, but he found favor from God, and then as a result, he was blameless and such. And then we come to the person of Abram. Why does this guy get picked? He doesn't even know he needs rescuing. How do I know he doesn't, need, he doesn't know that he needs rescuing? Look at verse 27 of our passage. These are the generations of Terah. Terah's Abram's father. We've discovered this. Now, Terah has an interesting uh, story that we can see developed a little here and in some other passages. I included some other passages on your outline that refer to him. I'll only read one of them, but we see something of his life. Terah, says in verse 27, fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Now, it goes on to say further about something about Terah. Terah lived in the land of, uh, lived in the land of Ur, the Chaldeans. Now, what do we know about this? Well, first of all, we know that Terah, Abram, Sarai are all names that are derivative from the Akkadian language. The Akkadians were worshipers of the moon. It's considered by most philologists, those who study the origins of language, that these are moon-worshiping names, Abram, Sarai, and Terah. We know that they worshiped other gods. They were not seeking the true and living God. They were worshiping someone else, probably the moon god. In fact, it's interesting that Terah was in the Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a hub for this kind of pagan worship. They were supposed to go to Canaan, it says, but they stop in Haran, which is another hub for pagan worship. So we could be pretty sure that Abram came from a life steeped in moon worship or pagan worship. Later, when Joshua, who comes after Moses, is describing for the Israelites to keep them basically fired up and pumped up to continue the the conquest of Canaan. Listen to what Joshua says to describe this period in Abram's life. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram, and Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abram was actively serving other gods. He wasn't just uh, uh, an agnostic. He was a pagan, an old nomadic pagan who did not know he needed rescue. No idea he needed rescue. And then Joshua says, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. Now we normally read the picture, God calls Abraham and he goes. And we give, we give a certain amount of credit to that. And the author of Hebrews mentions that as a big picture. And that's the human level. And if you would have watched it, you'd say, wow, Abram goes from where he was and he's go." But what it's, Joshua says, to be very clear, then I took, God speaking, then I took your father Abraham Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. He didn't even know he needed rescued. And God rescues him. And by extension, all of us who are sons and daughters of Abraham by faith in the seed that came from Abraham, Christ. All along the way, those people who received God's grace were recipients of of something they didn't even realize they needed. And that's your story too. He's placing his hand upon people to do important things along the way. To this point, none of the main characters in this unfolding plan were seeking after God. They're running from God or they're doing their own thing. And this is all the buildup to the call to Abram. You can see the examples throughout Scripture. You just, just name a person who did something amazing and all of it was because God rescue them from where they were and place them on the path to do something for him. 
Virtually everyone. Think of Joseph in a pit who couldn't help himself. Think of, think of David. Think of Paul on the road to Damascus. He wasn't going to see Christ. And this is true of all of us. Not one of you knew you needed a rescue when you got Now, you may say to yourself, well, I was at the end of this stage of my life and I, was, I had nowhere else to go. Yeah, who, who gave you that awareness? You wouldn't have had that awareness if it weren't for him. This is exactly what Paul captures when he's talking to a pastor of all people, Titus. He's giving Titus clarity about the gospel so he preaches it correctly. In Titus 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But finally we came to our senses and realized we could do better. Now that is not what's in Titus. It says, but, even though this is all true of you, you hated yourself and you hated everybody else and they hated you, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. We didn't even know we needed the rescue. We probably thought we didn't. In Ephesians 2, Paul says it again. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. You were walking happily in those following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But you know, as we thought about it hard, we realized we didn't want to keep living like this. That's not in the Bible either. Children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. A dead person doesn't know they need to be resurrected. And that's the story of salvation. It's a story from the beginning to the end. That's all there is, and it's still the same story today. We go from Abram, the worshiper of false gods who had no idea he needed rescuing, to what comes in the next chapter, which I can't help but read just a couple verses, chapter 12. Maybe Jesus comes back before next week and I don't get to preach that passage, which would be fine. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, all those moon worshipers and everything you're part of there, and go to the land that I will show you. And when you go, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He didn't even know he needed this. One final observation I want to make, the final point. Choosing Abram and Sarah, are you catching this? Anyone who's down about who you are, what your talents are, gifts are, abilities are, what you've done in the past that you think will somehow uh, freeze you for the future, this should free you of that. There are many other examples in Scripture, but just think of Abram and Sarah. I want you for a moment to think. You're promised to send a seed to undo this tragedy of this fall, this eternal tragedy of the fall. So if you're going to do this and you have mankind to look at, who would you pick to bring this sacred, anointed seed. I don't think you would pick an old, nomadic pagan and a woman who couldn't have a child. So whatever it is you think you can't do, you can do it. The Lord will give you what you need. If he has a purpose for you, a calling for you, he will equip you to do that. And he loves it when you're weak because then he could show himself strong. That's exactly how God does it. When you look at this picture, there's no way you could read this and think anything about these people merited their favor with God. Same for all of us. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is capturing this thought. 
He said, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. It's a, quite a sermon. You know, you're pretty lame, people. You know, you're not really, this is, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, th- to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Praise God for your weakness, for our weakness, for our foolishness before the world. Commonly, God pe- picks weak vessels to do great things. There are no barriers, no barriers to God's electing grace in his ultimate purpose, none whatsoever. We shouldn't look down upon anybody. None of us deserve salvation. None of us are equipped on our own to do whatever it is that God calls us to. So, as we come to the end of the first 11 chapters, it's important to recalibrate a little bit. The book was written to prepare Israel, at least at first, under Moses to enter the promised land. And that's a daunting task given the strength of the nations that lived in Canaan. The progeny of Ham. They had to know who is God. Who were they? What was he calling them to do? What was he providing so that they could do it? How could they do it? Genesis 1 through 11 puts them in their place and us in our place. In the last book of Moses, when they were literally on the cusp of going in, God speaks these words to the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples he's chosen you who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people on the earth that he set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Genesis 1 through 11, foundations and generations. Now we move to Genesis 12 through 50, promises and patriarchs. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, as we come to the end of the first part of Genesis, please impress your sovereignty and your grace upon us once again. Lord, may our thinking about you be shaped by what you reveal in your word and made understandable by your Holy Spirit. May our understanding of who you are as our God and Father lead us to live in light of your calling and commands. I pray this in the name of Christ, the seed of the woman, the second Adam, for his glory. Amen. Let's respond by turning to 520 in, the, uh, in our hymnals. We'll stand and sing verses 1 through 3 of Jesus, thy blood and righteousness as the elders and ushers come to prepare the table. Let's stand.